Well, it must have been an awkward situation, to say the least. His fine robes unfurled in the dirt, the expensive linen cloth covered in a layer of settling dust. Its particles still hung in the air, disturbed from their lowly resting place and tossed up into the air by the quickened footfalls of a man who had come rushing up. His head of nobility now bowed, his body bent low, like some servant or like some slave. It must have been an awkward situation, to say the least. At the sight of this, the hammer must have slipped from the blacksmith's calloused hand. At the sight of this, the bread must have burned in the baker's oven. The knife must have dripped a puddle of blood, stand still in the butcher's lowered grasp. At the sight of this, the plow must have run forward with the oxen. It was an awkward situation, to say the least. Here was this rich man, kneeling down, bowing down at the feet of the one they called Jesus. Now that's radical. But then he uncoiled like a serpent, lifted his head and met the gaze of Jesus right in the eyes. And he opened his mouth to speak. And the words they rushed out with, with confidence practiced confidence, learned from his interactions among the wealth and nobility of society. And he spoke the words to Jesus. He said, good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? At the sound of this, the blacksmith must have stepped forward from his forge. The baker must have just let the bread burn in the oven. The butcher must have stashed his knife and removed his apron. And the farmer must have walked over from his field to hear. How would Jesus respond? Good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? What would Jesus say? We're going to explore that today. Welcome to Journey the Church. Very special welcome to you if you're brand new. Uh, this is probably not the sermon series you uh, want to come to if this is your very first time here, because it's radical. It's about life change and heart change and transformation, and sometimes that rubs us the wrong way. Today we continue the second week of this sermon series, Radical, Backwards Faith Within a Backwards World. You know, Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus came to set the captives free. Jesus came to restore sight to the blind. Jesus came to set the oppressed free. Jesus came to transform a backwards world in a radical way. And to the world, proclaiming good news to the poor, that, that, might, that might be a, a bit backwards. Setting the captives free, that, that might look a little bit backwards. Restoring sight to the blind, that might look backwards. Setting the oppressed free, that might look backwards. And certainly faith at all costs in Jesus might look backwards. But what if radically living out our seemingly backwards faith in Jesus actually changes the world? 
That's what we're exploring in this sermon series. What if our radical faith in Jesus, seemingly backwards, actually changes the world? Our lives, our families, our communities, ultimately everything. Would we do it? And how? It's an important question to ask, after all, isn't it? Especially in our world today, where one in 12 Christians live where their faith is illegal, forbidden, or punished. It's an important question, after all, isn't it? Especially in our world today, where around 215 million Christians face significant levels of persecution. It's an important question, after all, isn't it? Especially in our world today, where every six minutes... One Christian is dying for his or her faith. If people throughout our world are willing to lay down their lives and die for their faith, then what's keeping us from living for ours? In this series, we're exploring how to be radically different, how to be radically transformed so that our lives, our families, our community, and our world could be changed forever. So if you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand as we read from our memory verse for this sermon series. We stand here to review the word of God. It's life-changing, transforming power. And last week we talked about how the internalization and obedience to the word of God changes the world. Now who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? Well, apparently a lot of people around the globe. But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Today, it's all about radical abandonment. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you with this really difficult topic to talk about. And the word is very challenging we see today. But I pray, Lord, that you would be here among us. You would change and transform and bring renewal and restoration. Lord, my words are weak and frail. But I know that your words are strong. And so I ask, Lord, speak to each of us in an individual way, on a personal level. Of maybe some things we need to change in our lives. Maybe some things that we're doing really good. But Lord, ultimately, we want to praise you and celebrate you and thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. As you grab a seat, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verse 17. If you don't have a Bible, it's on the green piece of paper that hopefully you received in the bulletin as you walked in through the door today. And if you don't have that, you can follow along on the screen. And if you don't want to do that, you can always download the Journey app and where there's a Bible translation as well. This is what it says, Mark 10, 17. As Jesus continued down the road. Well, first of all, from where? Well, he's going from Judea to Jerusalem. He's just finished up his shift as a jungle gym for a group of rambunctious, boogery children. And he has told them, after he's finished you know, untangling himself from them, that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these kids. And if you don't receive it like them, you won't enter it. As Jesus continued down the road from Judea to Jerusalem... A man ran up, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? 
Now, the scene here, it, it reeks of humility. But is it a humility that's just on parade? Is this a, a body bent low position that's just contrived? Is it, is it just an act? I don't know. But what I do know is that his word choice is awfully poor. Good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Oh, it's, it's your doing? And it's your doing that is going to obtain eternal life? Like, what is it? Something to be purchased, you know, with free shipping if you order in the next 10 minutes? What is it? Something to be achieved? Like, congratulations, thou hast memorized and regurgitated the correct answer. What, what is it? Something to be earned? Like a merit badge? A patch to go along with archery and basketry and canoeing? As the great intellectual, the great thinker, the great philosopher, the great theologian by the name of Curtis James Jackson III, also known as 50 Cent, as he put it, Homie, if I go to hell and you make it to heaven, just get me to the gate and I'll talk my way in. Got a gift. I'm special with the flow. I'm good. Well, good luck with that. Good luck with that. Uh, Jungle Jim Jesus, he just told the kids about this, that the kingdom of God is not to be obtained or earned or purchased or achieved or even talked into. It's simply received. Verse 18 says, Jesus replied, why do you call me good? No one is good except the one God. Jesus immediately takes the focus off himself and places it on God. You know, the God who gives his commandments. Remember that story where Moses downloaded the commandments from the cloud on his tablet? So innovative and so progressive, right? This is what the commandments say. This is Jesus continues. You know the commandments. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Don't cheat. Honor your father and mother. Each of these is part of the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, except for that don't cheat part. That's a, a bonus that Jesus just adds on here. Well, the Old Testament taught that if you kept the Mosaic law, you would live. But this was theoretically possible, but practically impossible. Well, maybe not for our body-bent-low guy here at Jesus' feet. Verse 20, teacher, he responded, I've kept all of these things since I was a boy. Kept or lived out? And is there a difference there between the two? Kept or, or lived out? You know the commandments? They aren't just a list of don'ts. They're actually do's when we look at it on a deeper level. It's not just don't commit murder. It's live in such a way that is life-giving. It's, it's not just don't commit adultery. It's live in purity. It's not just don't steal. It's be generous with everyone and everything. It's not just don't give false testimony. It's be a truth teller. And then for the bonus add-on, it's not just don't cheat. It's be true, be just, be fair. So then with this new understanding in mind, has this man actually kept all of these things since he was a boy? Apparently he has, at least according to himself. And according to the Greek text, actually, the, the verb that gets used here to describe this keeping 
of the law and these commandments is, is the Greek word verb philoso. Philoso, it means like it carries a nuance of basically what a shepherd does over his flock, keeps watch and guards them from wolves. In the same way, this individual who's coming up to Jesus has done so with his life in regard to the law. This man has wholeheartedly obeyed without fail throughout his entire life. I mean, if this guy were single, all the single ladies, all the single ladies, they would be on the prowl after this heartthrob. I mean, first of all, just just look at his his profile on uh, a dating site. He hasn't murdered anybody. That might be a potential red flag. He hasn't hooked up with someone else's boo. He hasn't ripped anybody off or defrauded anybody, and he's honored his folks. This guy is a keeper through and through. He's someone to bring home to mom and dad. Even Jesus looks at him and loves him. He must have said something like, man, this guy is good. He, he kind of reminds me of me a little bit. But no, Jesus says nobody's good except God alone. And this man like me and maybe like you is lacking in one way or another. But verse 21 says, Jesus looked at him carefully and loved him. He said, you are lacking one thing, one thing. Dude, I lack so many things, but this guy, one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, where the IRS isn't going to penalize you and we don't have to spend it all on bills. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And so he did. He abandoned his physical security and trusted in Jesus. No, unfortunately, that's not what happens here. It must have been an awkward situation, to say the least. In his attempt to obtain eternal life, he's met by a challenge to give. Instead of what he can get, it's what he can give and what he can give of himself. And this giving of his own self would then put him in a place of reliance upon God. Oh yeah, and by the way, he's, he's rich. Verse 22 says, but the man was dismayed. His face fell at this statement. And he went away saddened because he had many possessions. How different is his exit than his entrance? Remember when he, he ran up to Jesus, kicking up dirt and dust, and he falls down in humility at the feet of Jesus. Well, here now, he slinks away in sadness. Why? Well, the text says he had many possessions. How interesting it is that all of his possessions and all of the things he was striving after, they actually brought sorrow instead of joy. He was a lover of things more than God, more than others, more than things that really matter. He had made wealth his God rather than God, and his inability to part with this, it reveals a lifestyle, an attitude of idolatry. By selling all he had and giving it to the poor and following Jesus, though, he would show his radical abandonment of self-confidence, where he's not trusting in himself anymore and all of his wealth and all of his ability to do things. He would affirm trust in Jesus, who's far, far greater at that than we are. Then he would have true treasure in heaven, something that would last forever. 
But for the rich man, abandoning this physical security and then trusting in Jesus, too great, too great of a risk to take. And strangely, sadly, this is the only time in all four Gospels where someone who is invited to follow Jesus, someone who is, is called to follow Jesus, does not do so. I mean, how would you like to be that guy? Known throughout all history as the one who did not follow Jesus. I mean, that would have been a tough road to walk. It must have been an awkward situation, to say the least. This rich man, he, he goes to the, to the blacksmith and he says to him, Good sir, you know, that's how rich people talk, right? Good sir, I need to purchase some horseshoes. And then the, the blacksmith says, hey, it's the guy. <laughs> it's the money man. That's what we call him on the street. So he's perturbed at this. And he leaves immediately. And he goes to the baker, the baker who had previously let his bread burn. And he goes to the baker and he says to him, good sir, he's a little bit more perturbed this time, good sir, I need to procure a loaf of bread. And the baker says, oh, look who it is, it's the money man. Oh, you better give me a good tip now. Apparently this is the little Italy district of <laughs> Judea or whatever you think that accent is. It's the best I can do. So... Then he's even more perturbed and he leaves immediately, just busts out the door and he goes to his next, next appointment. He has an appointment with the butcher and he goes to the butcher and he says, good sir, a little more perturbed this time, good sir, I need to buy a rack of lamb. And the, the butcher says, oh man, the money man, he loved Jesus. No, he didn't love Jesus, he loved money too much more than Jesus. He bolts out of the place and he goes to the to the farmer. And before the farmer can even get a word in, edgewise, he says to him, yes, it is true. I am the one who could not follow Jesus. I am the money man. I require your services. Money man's reputation as a lover of things, it must have circled him like flies throughout his entire life. And it does for all who follow suit. Verse 23, looking around, Jesus said to his disciples, it will be very hard for the wealthy to enter God's kingdom. The Greek is basileion, tutheu. It refers to God's kingdom, the reign and rule of God, the, the way that God does things. His words startled the disciples, so Jesus told them again, children, it's difficult to enter God's kingdom. It's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. The camel weighing in at seven feet tall, 1,500 pounds, was the largest beast of burden in ancient Palestine. You seen the Geico commercial? You know what day it is, right? What day is it? Hump day, that's right. And yeah, Jesus is talking about a camel and he's talking about the eye of a needle, how it's harder for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And, and you may say, well, I've heard a sermon before or some pastor told me or some theologian or I read it in some book that uh, uh, the eye of a needle is actually a gate in Jerusalem. That is true. But Jesus is actually talking about the eye of a needle because that eye of the needle gate in Jerusalem wasn't built to the Middle Ages. So Jesus, in his ministry, comes long 
before that, he's literally talking about a camel, how it's easier for a seven-foot-tall, at-the-hump, 1,500-pound camel to squeeze through the millimeter eye-opening of a sewing needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. Verses 26 and 27, they were shocked even more and said to each other, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them carefully just as he had looked at money man. The man who loved God, loved his wealth and loved himself more than, than God and others and things that matter. And Jesus said, it's impossible with human beings. There's no chance, no chance at all if you think you can do it on your own. But not with God. All things are possible for God. Jesus' point is that salvation is totally, completely through and through God's work. What must I do to obtain eternal life? Well, that's humanly impossible. But what is humanly possible is to receive God's salvation by abandoning yourself completely to him. In verse 28, Peter said to him, look, we've left everything to follow you. Yeah, that's right, Peter. I see you, bro. Thanks for pointing out your sacrifice. Real, real humble of you. That kind of abandonment that Jesus asked of the rich man is the same kind of abandonment that he had asked of Peter and the fisherman and the tax collector, Levi. That follow me, it contained radical implications that would change their lives forever. Jesus was calling them to reorient their lives, their entire lives around discipleship to him. Jesus was calling them to abandon their comforts and all that was familiar, all that was natural. Jesus was calling them to abandon their careers and abandon their possessions. Jesus was calling them to abandon their family and friends. When the fishermen turned disciples, James and John, they left their father Zebedee in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. They, they left to go chase after Jesus. We really see his words in Luke 14 coming to life. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, spouse and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even one's own life cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. But that first part just sounds so like unchristian. But ultimately, Jesus was calling them to abandon themselves. They were abandoning certainty for uncertainty. They were abandoning safety for danger. They were abandoning self-preservation for self-denunciation. In a world that's all about promoting oneself, Jesus was calling them to crucify themselves. And history tells us the result. Almost all of them would lose their lives because of this invitation to follow me. Well, let's put ourselves in the sandals of these first century eager followers of Jesus. What if we were those individuals being told to sell all we have and give it to the poor? What if we were being told to drop our livelihoods? What if we were being told to hate our families and give up everything we have in order to follow Jesus? Well, the truth is we do. 
We do have to give up everything to follow Jesus. We do have to love him in a way that is so vast and so passionate that it makes our closest relationships in this world look like hate by comparison. And it is entirely possible that he will tell us to sell everything we have and give it to the poor. Yeah, but we don't want to believe it. We want to avoid those passages of Scripture. We're afraid of what it might mean for our lives. So we rationalize these passages away when we don't ignore them. Jesus wouldn't really tell us to leave our livelihoods or say goodbye to our families. Jesus didn't literally mean to sell all we have and give it to the poor. What Jesus really meant was... And here's where we have to pause. Because we are starting to redefine Christianity. And we're taking the Jesus of the Bible and twisting him into a version of Jesus that we are more comfortable with. A nice, middle class, polite, politically correct, civilized, well-to-do American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism. A Jesus who who would never call us to give away all that we have. A Jesus who'd never expect us to forsake our closest relationships so that he would receive all of our affection. A Jesus who's fine with mediocre devotion, so as long as it doesn't infringe on your personal comforts. Because, after all, he loves us just the way we are. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, to avoid dangerous extremes, avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our own Christian spin on the American dream. But do you realize what you and I have done at this point when we do that? We're molding Jesus into our image. He's beginning to look a lot like us because that's whom we're most comfortable with after all. And the danger is that when we gather together in a church and lift up our hands to praise and sing and worship, We might not actually be worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. We might actually just be worshiping ourselves. Must be an awkward situation, to say the least. Peter had said in Mark 10, 28, look, we've left everything and followed you. Have we now? Jesus said, I assure you that anyone who has left house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, or farms because of me and because of the good news will receive 100 times as much now in this life. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and farms with harassment because it's radical. Following Jesus is countercultural. And you're going to face persecution. You're going to face contempt from the world. And yet in the coming age, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And I think this brings us to the radical question, is he worth it? This is a question we have to ask ourselves in the mirror. Is he worth it? Is Jesus worth abandoning everything for? Is Jesus so good and so satisfying and so rewarding that we will abandon all that we have, all that we own, and all that we are to find our fullness in him? Is Jesus worth obeying and following wherever he leads? Even when the crowds in our culture or the people in our churches are going completely the other way, is he worth it? Paninsky Dratza, that's the the name 
of a small farming village in southern Slovakia. We had been there about a, a month or so, and uh, it was Sunday, and Noah, one of the missionaries that we support here, he was preaching in this small little church in this small little farming village. And as he was preaching, it was hot in there. It was humid. You could hear the insects buzzing outside the walls of the church and the grain fields. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When the man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. That's what Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 13, 44. Well, to tell you the truth, we thought we were that treasure in the field. I mean, just look at these model shots right here. GQ magazine has the uh, copyright on this. We tried to reenact that scene from Gladiator, you know, where he's walking through, Russell Crowe's walking through the fields of grain here. Well, after church and after this sexy photo shoot that we had in the field, we had lunch at a family's house, a family who had gone to this little church in this little farming village. And all I can really remember about this lunch that we had with this strange family, they didn't speak much English, and at that time we weren't speaking much Slovak, and so it was kind of kind of different, but uh, all I really remember was that there was this gigantic rabbit that was just fat for the slaughter. Uh, there were these petite little desserts on this glass table. There was a lady with very dark, hairy legs, and there was coffee that was extra dark. I'm just being honest. This is what I remembered from this scene. But imagine that before we sat down for lunch, I'm out there in the field during the sexy photo shoot, and I stumble upon a treasure a treasure that's worth more than anything I could ever get my hands on, anything I could ever amount to in life, anything I could ever achieve or earn or, or purchase or obtain. And this treasure, what do I do? I just found this, this treasure that's worth more. It's more valuable than anything. What do I do? I just bury it, cover it up real good. And I go to, to lunch, and there I sit with this gigantic rabbit ready to be slaughtered, this uh, petite little dessert, lady with hairy legs and coffee that looked as dark as those leg hairs. And all the while, while we're having lunch, I'm jittery. I can't sit still. My, my legs are just jumping up and down under the table. My hands are shaking. I, I cannot hold it any longer. I just, I just blurted out in a whisper to Noah and to, to Bonesaw, these other male models right here in the picture. And I say to them, how much cash do you have? They looked at me with confused face. What, what are you talking about? How much cash do we have? I said, yeah, how much cash do you have? I... I want to buy that field. You're like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I want to buy that field. I think the first thing they would do is check my coffee cup for traces of drugs or hallucinogenics. I really want to buy that field, and I'm willing to spend every penny to my name to purchase that field. Anything I could ever amount to, I want to buy that field. And they say, what's gotten into you? Why would you want to purchase this field? And I'd say, well, I have a hunch. And the hunch is this. In the end, I'm not really giving away anything at all. Instead, I'm gaining. Yes, of course, I'm abandoning everything I have, but I'm also gaining more than I could ever have in any other way. So it is with joy that I abandon it all. 
Why? Because I have found something worth losing everything for. This is the picture of Jesus in the gospel. He is something, someone worth losing everything for. For when we abandon the trinkets of this world and respond to the radical invitation of Jesus, we discover the infinite, the infinite treasure of knowing him, of experiencing him. You know what, those passages that we've encountered hate your father, your mother, your brother and sister. All of these these images, they may be confusing. They may be radical. They make us feel weird, right? But I know that if I love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all that I am, I'm going to love them better than I could if I were trying to do it on my own. I know that if I try to hoard all of the possessions and all of the things that that I own, right, that I'm going to take with me when I die, right? No, you're not going to take it with you. Your family's going to be stuck with it, and then they're going to just give it away and sell it and do whatever they can, right? You know, when you really think about it, if I'm just trying to amass all of this stuff, why? What am I doing? But when I have loose attachments, oh, man. God blessed us a couple years ago with a a house. It was a fixer-upper, and we had Eric uh, Kennelty come over and many people from the church. John Urango's putting in an AC. I'm like, I never even dreamed of having AC. We live in Camarillo. This is a luxury item. We had Chuck Trepp put in a a water system. I mean, it was just amazing, the blessing that came. But, you know, it's just a house. And honestly, as as soon as as the rafters were were redone and all of these things, like, you, you know, it just deteriorates, right? Because that's what happens over time. I paint it and then it gets dirty because Zeke's splashing his food everywhere. You know, I have the nieces and nephews come over and now there's handprints everywhere. All I'm like, why did we paint the walls white? <laughs> but what we do here is we have loose attachments to these things. Like, yeah, it's awesome. I love it. I thank God for this, for the ability to have this stuff. A Maserati's really cool. I heard one just driving down the street the other day. I'm like, wow, that sounds like something I've never heard before. But for me, I don't feel like God has called me to spend like, I don't know, $200,000 on a car that could just get totaled like that. But it's not about having stuff. It's not about thanking God for the good things, but it's about not wrapping ourselves up in these things. But maybe you're still stuck in this position where you're like, abandon everything, all that I am. Yeah, just try it and see what happens. When you let God take ownership of everything, he's probably a better manager than you and I are. It must be an awkward situation though, to say the least. Like, Jeremy, you're making me feel uncomfortable about my life. And I'm not really sure about this Jesus. But I know this, I know Jesus is sure about you. Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men and women, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That joy set before him, that joy set before him that enabled him to endure the cross, 
That joy set before him that enabled him to endure the cross and scorn its shame. That joy set before him was you. And that joy set before him was me. So then, then why or how could I not abandon everything that I am for the sake of him who abandoned everything for me? If Jesus Christ be God, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. So God, we come before you today and we want more of you. All of the things that tangle us up in life, the hangups we face, the temptations just to amass ourselves in this American culture with more and more and more. Help us to see, Lord, it's, it's about loving you loving people and loving life, doing things that really count. Help us not to get swept up in the temptations of this world that offer us so much, but they always leave us hungry and thirsty, bankrupt and broken. But Lord, I pray that if someone in here today wants to abandon themselves to you completely, they, they're like, God, I, I, I don't even know if you're there. I don't even know if you exist, but I know that there are things in my life that need to change. If, if you want to try that, just pray. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin. The things I've done wrong, the, the hate, the unforgiveness, come into my life. I thank you for dying for me on the cross, for my sin, my shame, my wrongdoing. Come into my life and be my king because you rose from the grave. You defeated death once and for all. Lord, I pray that we would follow you into the places that you're calling us to, that we would live radical lives because we believe that if you are God and you died for us, then no sacrifice is too great for us to make for you. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name.